welcome to another edition of Veterans to Success, the podcast which is designed to go into the lives and the stuff that happens before, during, after military and how people transition. And today I've got with me uh, Danny Keating. Hello, Danny. Hi, Joe. Good to, good to see you again. Uh, and thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, uh, so what we've spoken about, it's all going to be revealed during uh this time we have together. Uh, so what I'd like to start with, because it, it's always interests me, what was happening in your life before the military? You know, what made you think you want to go in the military? Yeah, it's, um, I, I grew up in North London uh, in a town <clears throat> called Barnet. Um, I come from, a, I guess, a fairly um, sort of humble background um, and a, a, one of a military one, I guess. My my dad was a, a power um, that served uh, about seven or eight years, um, had tours of Ireland and Germany, uh, kind of well, way before um, having uh, having me. But um, certainly it was always something in the background uh, that I understood as a kid, <clears throat> what the kind of military could bring to you and, and how it can add discipline and all of those things my dad used to talk about. So it was always there and thereabouts. Um, however, as I grew up, I had no real interest um, to, to go off and serve. Um, and I always felt quite, as a child, I always felt quite unsure of what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. Um, I was pretty good um, during primary school at my studies. And then as I entered into secondary school, I guess I lost my way a bit. I fell into the wrong crowd and... Um, and spent the first two or three years really um, not focused on on school life, and I think that had um, a lasting effect throughout the five years I was in secondary school. And um, I actually, when I left school, I decided I, I left school with about two GCSEs. In uh, fortunately, one in, one was in English, and there was uh, another in geography, but the rest were all sort of D levels and and above. And um, I decided to go off and become a car mechanic for. For a year, I was absolutely dreadful at that. Um, so <laughs> it quickly become it quickly become apparent that I, I wasn't going to make a career out of that. Um, and then spent the next two years um, up until about sort of nineteen twenty. Well, up until nineteen, I spent the next two years just drifting around doing various labouring jobs, gardening, um, and not really knowing what what, what I wanted to do. Uh, it was at that point I decided to actually go back to college and do a business. Um, sort of, um, I think, GNVQ at the time, just a, an intermediate business studies. Really enjoyed it, but again, uh, had no idea. It was it was more to more the same of just drifting around. Ended up going into working in supermarkets. And uh, about the age of 20, I just realised that I need, something needed to change. I was feeling suffocated in Barnet. I didn't really know what to do. And funny enough, it was exactly the same age as my dad joined the, the army, feeling pretty much exactly the same. We yeah, had a... Okay a couple of beers and um, and spoke uh, at length about it. And he just, he mentioned one day, why don't you go and join, why, why don't you think about the military? Um, and I can remember going up to the career centre with no idea um, on what was going to be presented to me. I didn't have any aspirations to join the military, but I, I, I promised that I would give it a um, sort of review. So I was in the career centre saw this big burly sort of tattooed sergeant major in front of me and thought I'm giving you a wide berth um and there was a guy sat right at the back of the um uh, uh, right right at the back of the career center 
um, and I walked over to him, really unassuming um, bloke, and I, I, I sort of got talking to him, asked him what he did, and he told me that he was in the submarine service, um, had been in for about 12 years. Um, this was a draft for a year that he was doing. Um, and this was in central London that I was at. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, um, you know, we had a conversation for about an hour. By the time I left, I'd, just, I'd, um, I'd signed up pretty much. Um, and had been sold the dream. I mean, it helped that there was a little signing on bonus at the time, which I kind <laughs> of, uh, which I kind of uh, gladly accepted. But um, I, I don't really, I don't think I really understood what I'd done and the gravitas until I told my mum that I'd signed for the submarine service, and she was um, quite visibly um, distressed by the the whole <laughs> idea of me going and spending three months in a tin can. But um, yeah, it was like. Um, one of the best decisions of my life but it was um something i don't think i really fully understood until i got onto the train and actually went down to plymouth in uh, september of the 2001 and that was when when i got to the plymouth train station you then like well you know what what, what am i doing here right and, and i know that we have banter with army and navy and there's the army oh. and navy rugby game every year at twickenham so uh, your mum was visibly distressed. Uh, I mean, had she been married to your dad when he was serving or did they meet after? They met after. My, my dad come back with a bit of PTSD, to be fair. So he was a bit of a mess when he come back from Ireland. He was over for um, for Bloody Sunday and um, some, oh, of those right, sort of, okay. um, some of those scenarios where, you, you know, the situation in Ireland was quite horrible for a while. So... He was a bit of a mess, and my mum patched him back up. So I guess my mum was more of a more concerned that she'd been through this once before, um, yeah. and you know, uh, the whole idea of um, the patrols, and you know, I had to explain to her that submarines go away for quite a while, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think to her it was more around the whole idea of not wanting to watch me go through similar things that my dad did, I guess. Yeah, right, okay. And how did your dad feel about you joining the Navy rather than the Army? Um, yeah, I mean, my dad's always had a, quite a pragmatic view on it. Um, and he, the, well, I think the way he saw it was it was a much safer environment to be in modern warfare. Um, he had spent um, a number of years on the front line, and I guess my dad thought it was a, a, a wiser decision yeah. um, in terms of not being... And particularly at the time, you know, when I joined in 2001, we'd just come out of the Gulf War and terrorism was quite high and, you know, we were yeah. involved in skirmishes and conflicts all over. So I think from my dad's perspective, he was very, um, I think he, he respected and wanted, uh, liked the idea. I, I think the submarine service piece intrigued him. He'd been a para, so that kind of, that like going to the next level. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't yeah. know what he would have said if I'd have just told him I was going on the ships. But yeah. um, the, the fact that it was the submarines, I think, um, it kind of intrigued him a bit. Yeah, yeah. So your dad went as high as possible and you went as low as possible. I don't know whether that was to keep you away from your dad or or it was just the way it turned out. Yeah, I mean, funny enough, I'm I don't like heights, so I've always um, had that banter with him about the fact that, um, yeah, I couldn't have done that, um, and certainly I took him actually up in when we went to Scotland, um, my first trip. They used to back in the day allow um, parents and families onto uh, to the to the boats, um, right. and we had a family day, and my dad come down, and well, I remember having a 
beer with him afterwards and he said not a chance like you know never <laughs> um so it was quite interesting that we've got this complete polar opposite uh view on yeah. uh height and submergence yeah well i've been in a submarine and i've, I've got to i've got to say like i don't <laughs> mind i don't mind adventure and whatever but there's no way that i'd want to live for three months with a bunch of blokes <laughs> and women in a small tank under the water no not yeah yeah um, so right, so you so you was um, had a good meeting with the careers advisor, the Navy bloke who did a secondment for twelve months in London. So you go down to Plymouth, and uh, what's your greeting like? Uh, it might be slightly different than I'm your mother now. Who am I from a sergeant in, <laughs> in, the, in the army? So what was it like <clears throat> when you got there? Well, it was it was quite surreal. I mean, I had this vision of um, I'd got into sort of. I guess arguably wrong crowds when I was drifting for those two or three years. And I was, um, you know, part of me wanted to get away from the whole, <clears throat> the whole world in terms of Barnet and, you know, that London feel. And it, there was a level of excitement to, to, to get away from it all. And quite yeah. funny enough, when I got down to, to Plymouth, we, you know, we get ushered into the cafe in Plymouth station uh, and it's all very nice and, and, and calm. And um, I'm having a coffee and, uh, the first guy that walks up to me and introduces himself, we know each other's best friends and all of that. So I'm like, can't even get away from the place here. And we're still best <laughs> friends now, me and a guy called Tim Jackson, uh, a.k.a. Jacko. So, you, you know, it's um, it was quite funny, but we had a bit of a surreal, uh, I guess it was a bit of a indifferent start to, to our military career because the very next morning, um, we had the whole 9-11 attacks. So yeah. it was kind of... Um, there was an eerie feel um, around the naval base. And we went from um, a very low level of security into, um, I, I think, the highest that we'd been for uh, a few years on naval establishment mm. um, alongside. So it was kind of, th there was a level of seriousness um, across the um, training staff um, that we had to sort of contend and deal with in, in my entry because of the fact that, you know, we were clearly gearing up over those two months. You know, the whole temperature of the world was gearing up. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The call for us to go and, you know, into Afghan and and, and all of that sort of stuff. And you had the whole um, Gulf War um, 2 kicking off as well. So there was a, a level of, yeah, there was a level of seriousness in our training, which, you know, all basic training you, you go through. But um, there was a few reminders that, uh, across that, uh, that 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 sort of training eight weeks where you were reminded that you actually were here to to, to mm. potentially go to war you know and um yeah. yeah that it was but fun at the same time i i yeah i don't think for, for me the personality i think the navy suited me um you know we had times where we were drilled and it was horrible but i think that there's certainly from conversations i've had with pals that have been in the army and the and the marines there was a level of um it was easier, I would say, in the navy than it um, than than it sounds yeah. in the, the army and so forth. Well, I, I mean, there's always that saying that we used to use, and 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 I'm, I dare say it's still used today. In times of peace, we train for war, and in times of yeah. war, we fight for peace. And yeah, and, indeed. And I know similar when I was in in Germany in the eighties, we had the Cold War, right? Mm -hmm. And it it could kick off at any time, and we used to have what we called active edge, which would have been 
probably the same as you would have done with your drills. And, and it, it felt like the real deal because, uh, you know, you've got to treat dummy as live and get as real as you can. And unfortunately, on the big FTXs, the big final exercise, uh, and ones building up to, to it, we did have uh, fatalities, unfortunately, because that's how real it was with the equipment oh, wow. using. Yeah. So... So yeah, I totally get where you're coming from, and 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 of course, in a in a heightened security situation, back after nine eleven, that would have really honed into your instructors. Where we've got to train these guys so they're good enough. If if it does kick off, yeah, absolutely. And there were a couple of flashpoints where you really saw that in some of the senior instructors that had, you know, joining in two thousand and one. You had. You still had a few guys knocking around from the Falklands and and, yeah. and so forth that were on two OE engagements, you know, that extended engagements. So, you know, certainly they made they made it very real when you were, you know, when you were pissing about in a training session with four or five of you. You know, yeah. they they made it immediately. They hammered it home uh, as to the level of sort of seriousness you need to bring into these um uh, these environments and how training um you know and i still carry this sort of mentality in into civilian life and in in my job now around sort of building for success and you know ensuring that you've got the right skill sets in place now so that when when stuff does happen you you can see you know in sales for instance you know predicting the outcomes working between um, the now and what could happen in the future, and understanding what the the different outcomes, and making sure that you're you're ready for them, so that that anything that comes over, um, you're always prepared for. I guess. Yeah, and and I always find it interesting. People say, like civilians generally, they're not they don't understand how military guys, men and women, are just ready if if it yep. does kick off because. We train so regularly, and and I think that's something that uh, guys bring to business on civvy street. Indeed, yeah. Because you know you're just so drilled on processes, systems, techniques that when you do have to do the job, you can just do it easily and effortlessly. Yeah, and I always look in 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 my civilian life. I always struggle when people, you know, turn off their emails or. I'll get. I haven't been able to get back to you because I've got four hundred, five hundred emails building up, and I always struggle with that because you know my idea is always to, to be prepared, always to ensure that you've got enough time to manage yourself correctly, and all of this sort of you know key skills that you're you're, you're taught from day one. Um, and it always makes me laugh when you you hear people that are so busy that they can't they can't keep up with their own workload, um, and it's it's something that I, I sometimes take. For, for granted that I've had drilled into me from the age of 20, you know, that, that, that the ways of working, which are so transferable. And I think it's something that um, as, as veteran military leavers, we take, we take for granted and don't really realize how transferable some of those skills are that, that we yeah. are taught from day one, you know, even the nonsense. I never really understood why somebody was checking my bed every morning. Right. <laughs> um <laughs> But you then realise just doing that every day is 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 routine. It's structure. It's it's yeah. all of those things that they just become second nature to you in in your working life. It's discipline. So it's um yeah, it's something that I've massively 
started to really think about as I move into the next, the later stages of my career and into leadership and, you know, and beyond how I can help prepare the people that work for me and um, the, 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 the junior guys coming through, how I can help sort of try and transfer those, some of those skills without having HR issues raised over my head. <laughs> yeah. And that's interesting about make your bed because on the mastermind uh, program I run, I go in, I spend a whole session on make your bed. Mm-hmm. Because it's not about the bed and it's not about the sheets or the bed pack or anything like that. It's the process. Uh, and and the fact that at the end of the day, no matter what stuff you've been through, you've got somewhere safe to come back to. Indeed. And it's it's, <laughs> it's nice and made and warm and all that. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I get that. So, right. So you've gone through training, uh, basic training, uh, and they've got you sub ready or how, whatever you however you would describe it, but then you get to your first ship. How how are you feeling at this point? My first boat. So you get drafted before you qualify on the submarine. You have to um, you, you do what they call a, an SMQ wet phase, which is your your final test, which is walking around the whole um, submarine. It's probably the hardest thing I've ever done. It's it's intense. You know, you start at the begin the, the front of the submarine, working your way you're back, and you're with um, um, two very senior individuals, and they're just start firing questions. You know, what what's that um, valve? What how does it, how do you isolate it? What does it do? What pressure air does it come that comes out of it, etc. And that's all the way from the front of the submarine all the way back. Um, and essentially, you're building a crew where everybody can help every individual, no matter what the situation, no matter what the rank. Yeah. If you're in a an environment where it's unfamiliar to you, you should still understand how to shut that sub that environment off, uh, isolate it, and make sure the rest of the ship's company are are safe. So, um, the, my first trip was on HMS Vigilant, um, which was a Vanguard class Trident uh, nuclear submarine um, based out of Faz Lane. Um, so at the time, yeah. the submarines were split between. Devonport um, and Faslane, so Devonport in Plymouth and Faslane just up on the the coast of Scotland. So um, I didn't really understand. They they ask you to pick the submarine you want to go on, and uh, at the time I didn't really understand what I was giving up in Plymouth. Um, so I ended up joining the uh, Vanguard class up in Scotland, and that ultimately became one of the decisions for me to leave. Seven years on uh, was was being stuck up in Scotland and I, I struggled up there. But um, certainly when I first went up, um, it was, you know, pretty awesome. And I can remember, uh, I've actually got a video of uh, me going to see the first time, which my mum and dad shot um, from the, the Helensburgh coastline. But um, yeah, we went we went out and the first trip was a three-month patrol, um, which I was I think I was underwater submerged for about 94 days, 93 days. <laughs> That's a first. Yeah. That's a first stretch. That, yeah, it is indeed. Yeah, yeah. And and what what sort of? Because obviously, I know being in a submarine is pretty secret, and what goes on, uh, you go down to depths where nobody can detect you, or it's very difficult. Yeah. Um. So, what can you tell us about the lessons it taught you, in in generic terms? Um. Um. How did you feel when you were down there? Yeah, I mean, it's quite surreal for me. Uh, It was strange just watching how, you know, 110 plus men 
all because at the time it was just men on submarines. Then, uh, you know, over the, the years we've started to um, to diversify, which I think is a good thing. But um, at the time we had 110, you know, blokes essentially from all different walks of life um, serving on submarine at the same time, and um, I was surprised how, even though you're in a confined space and even though you're, you know, you're stuck with these 110 people, how at, at times it was quite solitary um, and how, you know, you felt alone at times and, you know, they would go through periods where you missed home and um, and all of those sorts of emotions around what am I, what am I doing, you know, 30, 40 metres, 40 foot under the water, you know, drifting around. And so there, there were times when I would, I would question it. But I think for me, the biggest sort of lessons I learned immediately was around that idea of sort of teamwork, sort of togetherness, ensuring that, you know, um, you are absolutely aligned to every potential crisis that possibly could happen you're you, you've thought about you've understood and I think like I said earlier on that is still something I majorly take forward in my career now is is trying to particularly in sales um working in IT sales always trying to understand the potential outcomes of a deal that we're working on or a, um, a conversation we're having with a customer um and those kinds of lessons were were where I started to to really harness that way of thinking. But uh, I guess the other thing was just the respect of individuals. I mean, the submarine service is slightly indifferent when you go to sea. You you know, invariably, a lot of the junior officers will drop rank and you will just be on first name terms, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it becomes very much um, almost a, a non-military militant way of life under um, uh, underwater. Um you know, you've got the absolute rigor and steel and routine of the military driven into you, but there is also a level of calmness that you, you that I never saw outside of um, being underwater. Where you know, ev- you know every single person in that submarine, and I know it's a, like this across the military uh, has got your back, whether you get on with them or you don't. You know, um, and it's not just having that 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 back; it's also knowing that that individual is as highly trained as you are to do the same job as you. Yeah. Uh, uh, which, in- was, which was epic. It's interesting. I picked up on the fact that, uh, and I get where you're coming from. I'm, I'm interested in finding a little bit more about your take, is you said that even though you're on uh, a submarine with 110 blokes, that at times it was solitary. What do you mean by that solitary? Yeah, I, I, I think... For, for me, you know, you the, the working pattern that we had, I mean, at the time I was in the ops centre, I went on to become a chef uh, a couple of years down the line when I was in the boats. But for the first couple of years, I was working in the control room. Um, and we used to work six on, 12 off at the time. And, you know, those 12 hours off, you'd have something to eat. You might get a little bit of a workout. We had a small gym down there. But then, you know, you're ending up spending um sort of seven to eight hours in uh, a bed the size of a coffin almost you know it's it's very very enclosed um you get you tend people what i saw is a lot of people go within themselves um and you, you know the levels of conversation are there but um at times you know 
um, you, you can feel very alone on a submarine. But it, you always being around people, and I think it's the luck of lack of loved ones and the lack of sort of yeah. human connection in in your own circle. So, and and people dealt with that differently. You know, um, I used to I, I know guys that would write journals and you know um, letters back to their family, although they couldn't send them. Um, so there was there was often times where you would you would feel alone um, and and you know in solitary whilst you're still around so yeah. many people yeah and, and and so you definitely didn't join up to have a walk-in wardrobe then <laughs> no. i think that'd be first to say wouldn't it right so <laughs> so you've from what you've said right you you've gone through your training you're on the submarine you've got and then i picked up on the fact that faz lane was uh, dynamic at first, but it was probably one of the reasons you uh, actually decided to leave. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was a culmination. I, when when I first, I remember speaking to Drafty and um, they were talking to me about the options around, you know, the difference between the attack submarines and the, the nuclear submarines. Um, well, the nuclear trident missile submarines. And what I I regretted the decision the minute I got up to Faslane was that we had this notion of you could go up to the you, on um, Vanguard class at the time you got a lot a, a lot more time off you would do a three month patrol you'd come back and invariably have sort of two months of downtime at home yeah um, to, to to recover and recuperate and it was very almost transactional you did a patrol and you did you know and the idea i always i got sold on was this idea that you can go and save up and then go on holiday every sort of three months and go out with the lads rather than going on this global tour with a submarine and you you know and i I don't know why but i kind of got led down that path and after being up you know i'd never lived in scotland i'd never lived outside of london apart from those sort of 12 to 15 weeks in plymouth um, and I didn't realise the minute the minute I got to Faslane, I realised how much I missed being in a city coming from London, yeah, yeah, yeah. coming from and Glasgow. I didn't drive at the time. Glasgow was sort of forty five minutes away on a train, so I didn't realise what an impact that would have on me. Mm, yeah, Just being stuck on the coast with a row of pubs um, where everybody knew each other, and it kind of um, the two or three years I was up there. Um, I was almost coming home most weekends, as were most um, Southerners. You know, so we were we would go up on a Monday or on a Sunday night, and then travel home on a Thursday evening, Friday morning, as soon as we could. And you you're ending up doing that every week, and it it, it just became quite monotonous and um, yeah. difficult. But I, I then ended up back in Plymouth, which was great um, for the last sort of four years of my career. And and I know where you're coming from from. With that, because as you can detect, I'm from the northwest from my accent, and and I I finished my career in Kent, and and then I, I stayed in Kent and I became a financial advisor. So I was doing that journey uh, a lot uh, because I set up business in the northwest, but my family stayed in Kent, so that was regular mm. every week, uh, and and going doing that journey even further, Faz Lane, that is some travelling. So I can understand. And, and I know also, like living in a city like London, moving up to Faz Lane, that would be a, a massive difference. <laughs> and, and I remember 
<clears throat> when I was in the army, we, we used to take the mick <clears throat> out of Southerners and say, listen, you don't need a passport, you know, to go past Milton Keynes or what <laughs> You can just travel up there in a car or a train and there's no immigration or anything. So, yeah, uh, so that is a big switch. So you've made the decision to get out now. <clears throat> and uh, what sort of things going through your mind? Yeah, uh, I, I think my decision, I, I made. I actually made the decision on, um, I think, the 27th of December 2006. Um, and I'd, I'd had Christmas, I'd worked alongside my submarine at the time was in refit in um in the docks in Plymouth and um I'd had a good Christmas my family had come down to Plymouth we'd we'd, we'd really enjoyed it I'd started um seeing a girl in London at the time um so I started just thinking about uh what I wanted in the future and I saw a number of you talking about sort of traveling up and down the line and not seeing your kids and, you know, and all of those sorts of emotions. And I started seeing a number of relationships break down and people getting divorced and um, and then not knowing whether to go home or, you know, and it, it yeah, just yeah. started making me think about sort of life after the military, whether I wanted a, a career in the military. And um, I decided after seven years, it was probably it was probably time to, to step away. Um, and I was getting to that period. And I think a lot of people do when you get to seven years, you, that's the kind of cut off before you think, well, I may as well do my half pension. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. And, then, and then you get to your half pension. You're like, well, I've only got another 12 left or 11. And I may as well yeah, crack yeah. on and do. So I, I decided seven was, was going to be it. Otherwise I would end up doing 12 and then who knows um, the, the full engagement. So, that that was kind of my main decision. Um, I didn't know whether at the time I thought um, about just going traveling and just um, really, I guess the cliche is to go and find yourself. I was 20, 27 at the time, um, sort of thinking I, I had, I didn't really need to, to make any crucial life decisions. Um, and then it was just by chance, I, as I mentioned earlier on, I changed to become a chef in the Navy uh, for the last three and a half or years, I saw an incredible um, rise through the ranks. Um, I was promoted from um, sort of junior chef to, to leading chef, running my own kitchen on a on a nuclear submarine within twelve months of actually taking uh, switching and doing basic chef training. So that was one of the quickest promotions at the time, and <clears throat> so um, I saw that and thought I wanted to follow a career in food. I had a passion for it. Um, and decided to go to university to do a food marketing degree um, in Birmingham. Um, so I did that for for three years. Um, so I moved moved out of Plymouth, and actually the Navy were pretty good. They let me leave um, four months early right. um, to go to university. So I put a, um, a case in, and my um, officer at the time, he was a logistics officer, um, he was really good to me and let me leave. Um, in the September, I wasn't due to leave into the uh, to the um, to the September. So actually, it was yeah. probably seven months' notice. Um, but they were great for um, they were great to me. Um, and yeah, I, I left. And what was going through my head? Um, yeah, it was. I, I never forget the day that I handed my um, ID card. Like a lost sense of identity. Um, you know that safety blanket being ripped around you. It's all I'd all I'd known. Pretty much, you know, I'd had this rough 
life from sort of 16 to 20 where I was sort of getting into the wrong things and doing the wrong stuff. Um, and then all I'd known is that safety blanket of the Navy. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've got guaranteed income coming in. You've got, uh, I was living on um, on base at the time. So I had three square meals a day and all of yeah, that yeah, sort of yeah. stuff that you, you've become reliant on. And the network of friends that were extended, you know, we we could go drinking whenever we did. We wanted to. We, you know, we I, I played football on Wednesday afternoons, and you know all these things. So, um, I, I guess the only saving grace was going to uni. Um, kind of ushered me in um, into a, an environment that was. I, I I've laughed and joked a, a few times and said, look, you know. The Navy at times is like university, but you just got paid. You know, you had the nights out, you had the laughs, you know, the camaraderie between different groups of people and the age groups and, and so forth. So the, the it felt like, because I, I went on and played rugby for the uni straight away. So it was kind of, it felt like I just went from one unit to another and yeah. um, that was um, pretty good. But yeah, it certainly... Um, it, it it was good for me to have a plan. I, I don't think I would have done well coming out, going traveling. I think it would have not been good. Um, vice, uh, similarly, I've known people to leave the Navy without really a plan um, just because they're pissed off with it and, you know, and angry with, with a decision that had been made. And I think that's where, for me, sometimes service leavers make the mistake of not really thinking about, and I know it's difficult to think, but you've got sort of that 12-month period to really digest and think, what do I actually want to do next? What do I do? I want to change my career completely. Do I want to do something that's um, similarly tied into the jobs that I've had uh, within the military? Um, and I, I don't think service leave is really fully. Uh, well, I, I think actually the military does a bad job when we're going through that sort of redeployment tra- training of really looking at how transferable our skills are into yeah. other industries that necessarily they they necessarily wouldn't put themselves into like yeah. the it industry for me well well yeah because that's an interesting point um because there's a few things that uh i observe is when you go into the military they spend six 12 months taking the civilian out of you and then building you up as a <laughs> soldier sailor or airman, a woman and then when you come out of uh, at Civvy Street, they don't take the military out of you. They just pop you out at the end. And <laughs> and, uh, and also, if there's any bitterness in in the in the person, the lever, because uh, of a particular experience which made them sign off, sometimes they're taking that baggage into Civvy Street, which isn't conducive to success, is it? No, no, not at all. Um, and I can re- look. I can remember one officer telling me that um, I'd be back within twelve months, and I wouldn't amount to anything, um, which was really constructive. And oh, actually- that, was, that was a good pep talk, then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, he was basically saying that most people fail, and they'll be. I'll be back within twelve months, and you know, see you, see you on a submarine soon, and you know, all of those things. Um, which helped me help drive me, but I, I, I do think that there's an element of arrogance um, that that I found as I was leaving as to this is the only world for you, and and there's nothing out there for service leavers. And I I, I think you know whether you've done four years or or, or twenty, um, you should be incredibly proud of having done done your time. Um, yeah. But I think there there could be more support out there for service leavers um, of of you know, whatever time spent in the military. 
So thank you for that. Uh, and so you get out, you're standing we're outside Plymouth, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you've just handed your ID card in, you've gone to uni, uh, you've lost your identity, and then fortunately uni is sort of uh, structured. Well, it, it is structured, maybe in a different way, but it helps you then bond with different people in different places from different cultures and different areas of life. Uh, and so you're on this food marketing course, taking a degree, uh, and, which is interesting because I know what you do now and it's nothing to do with food. So so <laughs> yeah. what happened? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think I left uni at 30. Um, well, about a month before my 30th birthday. So I was born in June. So um, I got a pass with a 2-1 um, in, in my um, in my degree and, and thought, what, what am I going to do next? Oh, well done. I, Thank you. And um, I took a couple of months off, um, had my 30th birthday, kind of started to assess what it was. I, I thought about, I wanted to go into some kind of new product development chef role um, type thing where you go and work for a, a manufacturing organization that develops new products and takes them to market. And um, I started looking at the jobs, the career path, the money associated to it and just thought, it's going to take me a very long time to get to where I kind of thought I could get to. Um, and there was, a, I, I guess, a, an air of realising that I didn't have the time as necessarily as a uni lever that would be sort of 24, 25 that could yeah. have that. So I was starting to look over my shoulder a little bit and thinking, even though I was 30, that you know I had to try and find a career that I could push on quickly and uh, and have potentially... Um, access to sort of uncapped earnings and all that sort of great stuff. Um, so I went to work, I went to a, I, I, and by the way, I was also applying for lots of jobs in the food industry and, and falling short in many ways. Um, with falling short? How, how, how was that? Um, just for some reason, I wasn't being picked up. I can't quite understand. Um, I had a, I felt I had a good story to tell, having the military background, having gone mm. to uni, having been a chef, um, but for whatever reason, I, I just couldn't land a job. Um, and I'd only been going about a month, but I just thought, right, this is a new, I'm, I'm going to try something different here. And, um, I went to a company called Pareto Law that specialize in graduate recruitment, where they look at taking sort of 20% of <clears throat> candidates. Um, they run these recruitment days and, um, I went along and kind of found the niche there because I was up against a lot of sort of 23, 24 year olds. I had a story to tell. It was, it was uh, a lot different uh, to others. Yeah. Um, and I realized the IT industry actually loves service leavers and it's something I hadn't really thought about. So they specialized in sort of IT sales all, all the way ranging from um, sort of um, security cameras all the way through to complex IT solutions. So, I, I did two recruitment days for them, got through um, and then got offered three roles. And one of them was in Essex. Um, when I met the leadership, it was in a sort of tech startup um, specializing in Oracle at the time. They did consultancy and managed services. So um, um, to, to whom I'm still close and friends with um, two or three of them. And one of them, Matt, is sort of a, a close ally and probably would list him as a mentor of, um, of mine. So. I did. I, I went and joined them for nearly eight years. Um, 
and and relocated to uh, to Chelmsford in Essex, and yeah, never looked back. Fantastic. So you're still down in Chelmsford now? In... I am. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I know it well. I used to work there for a short time. So, yeah, good. And you're talking about networks and mentor coaches. How important do you think it is to start building your social and business network when you get out and, and also to get yourself coupled with a mentor-coach sort of relationship? Yeah, I mean, it's something I it's something I learned actually in the Navy, Um we, my officer at the time, uh, Mike Roberts, who was a lieutenant, um, he was very big on um, anybody that he thought was sort of up and coming talent. He would pair us with other individuals in on the submarine around mentoring. So I, that's where I first started seeing the idea of a mentoring sort of system. And one of the things I quickly learned was try and strip away and I've done this throughout my career. Any anybody I've worked with, management-wise, I always look for the good and bad um, in in what I think about those individuals, and try and take as much of their good qualities out into my uh, ethos. Um, so I kind of some of my bosses have been by proxy mentors without them even realizing, you know, because <laughs> I'm I'm stripping away. But I soon realized after sort of the first year that I, I was developing quickly. Um, Probably too quickly. I had a bit of an air of arrogance with me um, in in the first year or two uh, within my sales career, and I think the directness of the way that military teaches you to speak to people sometimes um, can be often confused as arrogance and um, rudeness in the civilian world. Um, and it's in times of crisis or times of when things need to get done, you just. Yeah, so like just do it, and we'll talk about how rude I was to you two out, you know, two days later. But um, yeah, I, I did notice that. So I, I started reaching out to a couple of individuals that I respected inside of Oracle, <clears throat> who were uh, one was ex-military and the other wasn't. But um, I started meeting those regularly, just sitting down, talking about my career, where I wanted to go. Um, which then was helping build my network out. <clears throat> and and look, I think mentoring is probably, particularly I, I've just signed up actually for um, for a mentoring program and uh, to act as a mentor for ex-military folk. And I think it's usually important that, um, and probably a missing piece of the sort of service lever um, environment is that I think all of us as service levers that are in sort of whatever industry should be giving back and helping veterans sort of step into their next career roles. But for me, it's been probably the most important thing in my career is to constantly have somebody or people throughout um, the, 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 my roles to to have to, to, to ideate and to, to challenge me and to, to, to sort of push me into sort of helping me make decisions. Great. Yeah, because – and that's one of the reasons uh, I've established this podcast, because – what is always coming through is that the peaks and troughs, challenges, uh, successes that go on throughout the life cycle of before the military, in the military, and after the military, and and also about the the closeness and what you get from having a buddy buddy system. Effectively, yes, yeah. that's, that's what a mentoring or coaching program is. It's a buddy buddy system, like the officer uh, Mike Roberts 
taught you about and, and actually purred you up. So where are you now in your in your journey uh, to success? Because I know you've got a few things on the boil. Um, so what's next for you? Yeah, so currently I've just um, I've just joined a um, sort of a, it's a long-standing startup that's just been relaunched under a, um, a guy called Stephen Kelly, who's former CEO of Sage. Um, I had a conversation with him back in June, and he mentioned that he's, he's sort of starting this exciting project and uh, has asked me to come over to help build the alliances and relationships. So I've, I've had quite a sort of um, a bouncy career in sales and in IT. I've jumped between direct sales and I found my home probably over the last four to five years working in sort of more business development and building out partnerships and alliances. And I think for me, that's where I'm truly leveraging some of those really fundamental skills that I learned in in um, in the military. For me, next, what's next um, is to hopefully take um, Serato I'm working for into sort of um, a um, sort of, uh, I don't know, a, an IPO or some level of um, sort of buyout from a, a major organization, but to certainly work in for the next three years, helping this um, realize sort of hyper growth in terms of what we do. Um, aside from that, I'm working with um, Rise by Barclays, who are um, a fantastic initiative for fintech startups. Um, and helping them do sort of mentoring and, and skill sets. I've just been invited on to Tech London as an advocate there as well to, to help sort of lead thought, sort of thought leadership around the, the IT industry and, you know, also sort of playing around with ideas in, in my head around sort of becoming a consultant over the next year or two and starting my own practice, um, helping startup organisations with the idea around business development and be building meaningful relationships in the community. I think from an IT perspective, what we see now is the, the need for organizations to partner with other organizations and, uh, and take solutions to, to customers rather than just um, single-handed products. So that's, uh, I guess that's me in a nutshell at the moment is just continuing the, the journey. Look, I've got aspirations to become sort of more of a, a NED-based um, sort of non-exec director in in a number of companies over the next few years. Um, but the, the other side of it is, you know, which is huge. I, I think I said to you the other day about reconnecting. I've kind of shied away from my military connections for a number of years. Um, I don't know why. It's probably something I could probably do with some counselling on or something like that. But, um, yeah, I, for a number of years, I kind of stepped away and and didn't really focus on that aspect of my life but it's something that's become hugely important to me over the last year so uh, another thing that I will be doing over the next year is hugely focus on how I can give back into the sort of veteran and military community well thank you very much for your time and, and what I do want to know like it's the Colombo question I suppose uh, oh just one more thing <laughs> what what is the one tip that you would give someone who is either leaving the military and going to have to transition to Civvy Street or has left the military and maybe struggling or has left the military and is a veteran who's really doing well, what's the one tip that you would give them for any situation that would help improve their lives? Yeah, I, I think um, probably a couple, actually. One being speak to other um, 
sort of veterans and, and service leavers. I had a great call with a guy that reached out to me. He's in the US the other day, um, and a guy called Dan. And, you know, we've never met before. He reached out to me on LinkedIn and just said, look, I'm moving back to London. I've got no idea where or what to do next. Um, you know, can I can I pick your brains for, for half an hour? And I think people underestimate that. And, you know, it's quite easy to run a search on LinkedIn to find people. And I think more often than not, you would find that military personnel or ex-military personnel would be willing to give half an hour of their day up to to talk about and, and help ideate what potentially you could do. But I, I also think for service leavers, <clears throat> I think it's vitally important to have some kind of a plan of what you want to do next um, and and to understand what the pathway is to success there, whether it's, you know, whether you want to go off to be a plumber or somebody in IT or a brain surgeon, you know, what do I need to get? Where do I need to go? Who do I need to speak to? Are there any ex-military peers in in that environment that I can reach out to and understand how they got there. But I, I think for me, the individuals that I've seen struggle um, when leaving the military have been the ones that have left because of an argument or because of a, yeah. a, 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 a some kind of altercation and they've, they haven't sort of given themselves enough attention. I think, you know, the resettlement centers aren't going to do that for you. So for me, um, the one thing that I saw was that you've got to take the ball by the horns and, and steer your own destiny rather than relying on individuals in the career centre or the resettlement centre to do it for you. Fantastic. So that's brilliant. So I love the story. It's absolutely phenomenal. And and I think that, that you've got so many big plans, uh, which is fantastic. So... I'd just like to say thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed uh, having a chat uh, and uh, chewing the fat about you before the military, in the military, and then after the military. And, uh, yeah, exciting. Thank you. Thank you, Joan. I appreciate it. And, look, if any of your listeners want to contact and reach out and um, and talk, then I'm more than happy to to, to engage. Yeah, that's that's. Have you got any any way they can get contact you? What's the best way they can contact you? Uh, probably via LinkedIn. Um, yeah. Otherwise, um, you, you know, um, happy to to share my um, email details on the on the back of this as well. Yeah. Okay. Right. Thank you. Take care and have a brilliant. Thank day. you. Cheers. Bye. Cheers.